Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Liza Rawson. Liza, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Happy to be here. So to get started, for those who don't know you like I know you, could you tell our dear listeners who you are and what you do? I am a head of exhibitions at Liberty Science Center, which is a 300,000 square foot learning center in Jersey City, just across the Hudson River from New York, near the Statue of Liberty, hence the name. And the Science Center has 12 exhibition halls, live animal collection, giant aquariums, 3D theater, and the Western Hemisphere's biggest planetarium. I am privileged to lead a talented team of colleagues in the development and design of new exhibitions and experiences. We oversee the in and out of our traveling exhibition program, exhibition operations, keeping it all going, and the animal husbandry group, 110 species of critters. And what else can I say? The mission of the Science Center is to inspire the next generation of scientists and engineers and excite learners of all ages about the power, promise, and pure fun, which is great for us, of science and technology. Yep, that's it in a nutshell. Been here, been at LSE since 2010. Well, so you're taking care of just at least a few things. A few things. A few things. It's not boring. (laughs) No, it doesn't sound like it. You've got the biggest thing in the Western this and more critters in the largest thing that's the biggest. That's impressive. I didn't know some of that. One of my favorite questions to ask, though, is you're in a unique position, in a unique place. How did you get into this business to begin with? When I was 14 years old, I knew I wanted to work in museums. I grew up in a family that used to, for fun, go pretend to buy old houses. So I grew up surrounded by a love of old things and the things that people make. And I started volunteering in a local museum when I was 14 years old and decided that's what I wanted to do and ended up majoring in history and historic preservation. And I have a a master's degree in history museum studies from Cooperstown graduate program. And the thing that really interested me was how things tell stories and how spaces tell stories and how those things together can be very powerful. And I imagined that I would work in a historic site or a historic house museum and be a curator. And life being what it is, I progressed through, started out as a history curator and ended up at the Brooklyn Children's Museum through a series of amazing introductions. And that role, being in that kind of uh, space and having to think about children really changed how I thought about exhibitions and about experience. And then I was recruited by Liberty Science Center to just come and hang out with them and help them think about stuff. And I said, I don't know anything about science. And they said, perfect. (laughs) 
that's how I ended up at Liberty Science Center. Very short, 40 years condensed into just a few minutes there. So you're, uh, I, I like to say to, to people that in our business, as people who are not necessarily the subject matter experts, you can think of our ignorance as either being a negative or a professional asset. I prefer to think of my professional ignorance as being a plus because that means that until I've drunk too much of the Kool-Aid, I don't know any more than the visitors that we're planning for. Is yeah, that, has very, that been helpful to you? It has. A very wise woman, whom you may know Leslie Bedford, phrased it as being a beginning learner and that we should always start with that mindset at the beginning of a project, just to be open to what comes our way and and to not make assumptions. And that has been really helpful. So I do, we do work with content experts because you do not want to get that wrong. But when thinking about how to engage a 10-year-old with a topic that can be helpful to remember what it's like to be. Maybe beginning learner is a little bit more flattering way to say it than professional ignoramus. I might... <laughs> I might. Uh, I think you might yeah. adopt that. Yes. Yeah, so I might steal that one. Now that I'm comparing it to the one I had before, I'm thinking <laughs> maybe I'm due for an upgrade. All right, that's fascinating. That's super. I did not know that about you. I always learn new things about my guests. So let's get right into our topic for today. As always, I know the list, but not much more. And my guest has the rest. Today we are talking about the name of our session is "Start with Who It's For." with Liza Rossin. That's you. The theme here is that you shouldn't start designing by designing. You should ask questions instead. And we're going to go through what those questions are. So dear listener, notebooks out. Here we go. This is all news that we can use. Uh, Point number one, we have seven points that we want to go over today. And number one is our title point. Number one, start with who's it for? That's the first question that you have said you start with at Liberty Science when you're putting together new projects. Say more about why it's important to start with that question. You could start with lots of questions. Why is it that one? And maybe a little bit, why do you start by asking questions instead of designing anyway? But what's your take? I think starting with the question, who is it for, rather than what is it about, changes the context of how you think about whatever it is you're going to be doing an exhibition about. And starting with the goal of understanding audience and learning as much about them and their needs and capabilities related to whatever specific focus that you might have for a topic helps you think about the activity and the environment in a way that is going to engage them most productively. And to help us, it's more than just, who is it for? It's for kids and families. That's a little vague. So we get a little bit more specific and we develop a tool that actually, we first started using at the Brooklyn Children's Museum when all of a sudden I was being asked to think about children who don't read things and are malleable and come with adults and thinking about who it's for. So we did, we develop a framework. The developmental framework looks at 
It's a literature review of what research has been done to understand, let's just say children, might understand about fish. So what do children understand about water? What do children understand about how fish live? Whatever it may be. And then, so we look at the formal, any research that might be out there that someone might have done. We also look at their formal education, what they might be getting in the classroom, might be understanding about the environment. And then we look at them as people. What is a seven-year-old what are the capabilities, physical, social, emotional readiness of a seven-year-old versus a 10-year-old? And all of that goes into a great big chart. And that chart helps us understand how they might be ready to um, engage with a topic or a subject. And then we do the best practice of going out and actually talking to kids and prototyping, working with families. But Starting with who is it for and really trying to drill down and define what that means from a social context, physical context, emotional, cognitive abilities, physical abilities, it helps you understand. To me, it's, it helps you, it, it helps knock all the extraneous stuff off the table. So you have data that you can start with. So when you're developing your exhibit and you're thinking about the content and you're deciding how it's going to be shaped and you have a clear path, you're not making guesses. And I like to say you're, you're using your money well because you've defined who they are and you're fairly confident that whatever you do is going to be something that is engaging and appropriate for that audience. I hope that's clear. <laughs> so, so it is. I have to ask because we're talking about start with who's it for. Do you literally not start thinking about the topic at all first? You just mentioned just brainstorming. What do kids know about fish? Would would you at least have a general idea of the topic? Oh, or sure. Do you really, so, we so you do have a general idea. I'll start with a gallery we just did for early learners. And it's called Wobbly World that opened in 21, we knew our audience were young learners, the kids who were under four and younger. And we knew that we wanted to do a gallery for them. And we knew that we wanted to find something that would be organic to who they were. And so um, that was balance because balance is a poor uh, experience that children from the time they're born start playing with, and it's a scientific concept. So um, that was a case where we knew the audience and knew what the topic was. And then in other times, we are given, we're given the topic, and we have to figure out how to fit it in. So we've been working on a uh, thinking about the Hudson River and if we were going to do a new uh, exhibition, update our experience of, we have an ex a gallery called Our Hudson Home, we would start with what, do, what does our core audience know and understand about the Hudson River? And then we would look at, in thinking about the activity in the interactivity, 
what are they capable of doing? What do they like to do together? What do they, what do we, it, it gets into, it's complicated. And as I said <laughs> before we got on the call, it all mushes together. It's a conversation back and forth between the topic and the audience. And probably one last example is one of the first projects I led at Liberty Science Center was on the Rubik's Cube. It was an exhibition where we were charged to develop an exhibition about the Rubik's Cube. So that was the topic. So we had to find out what do kids know and understand about Rubik's Cube, where do they engage, what time, all of that. And for our, our dear listeners, if they're like me, they're probably wondering, the research that you tap, mm -hmm. once you ask this first question, who's it for, you then start finding out those people that it's for, what are they able to do? What do they know about a subject? What are they comfortable doing socially? Where do you find that research? That sounds like that's from the Department of Education or from the proceedings of the conference about young neurological something. Where is? Am I on the right track? Where do you? Where uh, can I our audience it, it, find that? And kind I of think thing? it depends on where we go. We do start with the educational um, guidelines for the state of New Jersey or for. If it's a larger, we look at the curriculum that kids are being given. And we also look at the benchmarks or milestones of a kid's general growth, the social, cognitive, physical. These are all tools that are, from, are familiar to educators and doctors and a lot of parents now that you can see the benchmarks of where should your five-year-old be? What should your five-year-old be doing? What is a seven-year-old doing? And and so that's one piece of the chart. And the other piece of the chart is the formal curriculum or any research that someone might have done. There's some literature review. Someone might have done something about children's understanding of culture, for example, or fish. And it's all condensed and consolidated into a chart that we can refer to through the course of the exhibition. I should say we've also done these charts for adults. What is a what do what are caregivers looking for? What is a reason for if they're coming with their children? Who are they, and what do we need to think about for them? And what are their what is their interest, and what is their motivation? It's not an exact science, and every project is different. And we certainly build upon the work we've done before, so we're often not starting from scratch. Starting from scratch is a lot. Having done this for many years, we know where to go to and and can build upon what we have. And I'm wondering, I should have been one of my first questions, because our first point here is, first, ask who it's for. How do you determine who it should be for? In other words, in a, in a case like the project you were talking about, Wobbly World, you're talking about young kids, and then it sounded like in that case, you almost thought of who the audience should be, and then what kind of a phenomena, a phenomenon would be interesting to them. How do you at Liberty Science determine what the audience should be? Is that by looking at what your offerings are and making sure that you have something for younger kids, older kids, adults? Like, How do you determine who the audience ought to be for something? I think in our case at Liberty Science Center, our audience is very broad. So we tend to think of a target as a target audience and then 
consider each side of that target. And our target tends to be school kids. We get a huge number of middle school, elementary, but primarily middle school kids. And then we have a we have an adult audience too. So our goal is to, I think we always think about that target audience of kids in that 10, 50% of our audience is under the age of 10 coming through the door and they're coming with adults. So we want to think about the experience of those 10-year-olds or 8-year-olds or 9-year-olds with their families. And then we want to think about the gaggles of the the 3,000 school kids who are going to be coming through the door in any one given day. So I think our target is always in that middle school age, late elementary school age kid and the people who come with them, basically. And those kids, people that come with them can be siblings who are very young. It can be grandparents. It can be parents, but they tend, they don't come alone, <laughs> uh-huh. but, but everyone's happy if they're engaged. And so that's where the, the younger kids come in because they're coming along. They're coming along. They away. now come for Wobbly World. So there is a very large group that is returning. The wonderful thing about kids and young kids is they like to do things over and over and over. So we have a very strong membership base that is coming back on a regular basis to experience Wobbly World or whatever, be it the, you know, the planetarium or the giant climber in the center of the space. So, um, but the impetus to do Wobbly World was that we had this much younger audience and who was coming and deserved a space that was beautiful and engaging and for them and that could accommodate them. Because every time a young child comes to visit, they are a different person. You've ha- you have children, right? So they're different every time. So we wanted to create a space that an infant an infant could be engaged and happy in and safe in, but who, if they came back at 18 months, was still the, the space still served them. And and I actually think we did that. But it, it is that was a case where we knew we wanted to create something for a particular audience. I'm not clearly. I'm not in the target audience for Wobbly yeah. World, but just your description of it and what it. I don't even know what it is, but somehow your description of it. I would like to now go to Wobbly World myself. It is actually a problem. Everybody would like to go to Wobbly World, but you have to be under 41 inches to get, or 42 inches, sorry, to to get into the gallery. It is a beautiful, magical space that explores the concept of balance in all of these different modes from large motor to very small motor. There are no words. It's beautiful colors. It was designed with Cass Holman, who is a toy designer who most people are very familiar with her big blue blocks. Um, They're everywhere in rigamajig. And yeah, it's a delightful space. And it's very pretty. <laughs> I this I'm, I will not qualify for being under forty. You would just have to come with someone who's smaller than 
42 inches and then... I will fold myself up and try to sneak in the front door. Okay, so once we've done number one and we've figured out who it's for, number two in your process at Liberty Science is the next question you ask is number two, what do we want to hear them saying? I thought that's an awfully interesting point number two. What do we want to hear them saying? I'd love it if you could unpack that uh, for the audience. Why is that number two? And what are some examples of things that you have wanted to hear people saying and then they said that? I think when we are imagining a space, when we're developing, we develop experience goals. And there are a number of questions that we'll get to. But if we start with, what do we want to hear them saying? We want to hear, perhaps, how does this work? Watch me do this. Oh, this is so cool. Or let me show you this. Oh, look at this. It's so we want to hear, We want or wow, I didn't know that. Or this is so cool. Whatever. It can be emotional. It can be, it can be, I want to, it, it can be about around a content point. So it depends again on the topic we may be thinking about, but usually when we say, what do we want to hear them saying? It is around engagement. We want to hear, we want to hear them saying things where they're engaging in the content, they're engaging with each other, they're inviting other people into their thinking or into their activity. So that's, what that means. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I thought what you were going to say is, well, in this exhibit, we want to hear them saying, I have just learned that penguins, in a sense, fly through the water, though they are flightless. I thought that's what you were going to mean, that it's some kind of pedagogical, quizzable outcome. But what you're really talking about is that very first thing, like the ABC, the A is attention, that it's really about almost a blurted out reaction in a moment of awe. And we want to hear them. We want to hear them reading to each other. That's an, another thing that we don't have on this list. But when we talk about what do we want to hear them saying, one of our core goals is to not have any labels. But when there are labels, that the labels are something that inspire our guests to read them aloud to each other. So. That is another goal for what do we want to hear them saying. We want to hear them reading the listicle, whatever it may be. It's the experience goals are experience goals. They're not they're not learning goals necessarily. I tend to think about that as something else. Learning goals is are to me when you they're a quiz, right? When you walk when a guest walks out of an exhibit, what did you learn? And you want to hear them list cows fart or whatever it may be. That's one thing. Experience goals to me are more emotional and are about engagement. And because if we are going to inspire the power and pure fun of science and technology, being inspired can be, is an emotional connection first. As I like to tell my clients, inspiration first, education second. You can't do it the other way around. Does not work. That's great. 
That's great. That's an, totally not what I expected <laughs> that you were going to say. But at the same time, just to be clear, to reiterate what you just said, you do have these experiential goals, and these would be emotional things that people would feel as they're becoming engaged with things. This is so cool. This is amazing. Hey, watch me do this. But there are also learning goals as well. Sure. You, you would like people to take away the fact that penguins, in a sense, fly through the water or, or whatever it may be, that the world is wobbly, but you can balance yourselves and look how critters balance and you're a critter too, whatever it might be. Yes, but there are way, uh, yes, absolutely. And at Liberty Science Center, we have done, uh, we work really hard to think about how to present how to present that information in a way that is engaging so the learning is happening without the without without it feeling forced so it because you're inspired and you're having fun and you're engaged you're absorbing the whatever the content is and an example of that would be we were charged with doing an exhibition about microbes. That was the charge. Do an exhibition about good microbes. Really hard topic. You can't see them, right? But, and this is probably jumping ahead a little bit, but we created an experience where children could, or guests could mimic the activity of a microbiologist to create use bacteria to create art on an agar plate, which is something that microbiologists do. There's a competition every year. And we and a child came, fell in love with the exhibition, and did the experience in the exhibit and was inspired then to create an actual piece of agar art, went out and learned what it was, and submit it to the competition, and won second place. <laughs> to me, that is a successful link between an experience, the experience goals, so it's beautiful, it's awe-inspiring, it's super engaging, it inspires the next step to go explore more deeply and maybe become a microbiologist. For, for our dear listeners to know how unlikely and wonderful that outcome was, could you just briefly describe the agar art competition? That's agar, A-G-A-R. A-G-A-R. And that, if I remember I'm from my... That. I'm going to get the name wrong. Let me just... If... Agar is this, if I remember from high school biology, that's the medium that you have in a Petri dish. Yes. It's that sort of transparent, looks like jello. And you can put bacteria there and they'll grow, and they grow in a colorful, somewhat maybe nasty or not pattern. Is that what agar art is? It's it like is. little round. So the American Society for Microbiology holds an annual agar art contest. And it turns out we learned. And this is like the amazing thing that you learn. This is why it, doing exhibitions are just mind-blowingly fun. What we learned was microbiologists, that bacteria is beautiful and that each type of bacteria has a color and a pattern 
and microbiologists isolate the use bacteria as an as their paint in the agar dish and the bacteria it's a very precise process because each bacteria has to be grown at a certain temperature for a certain amount of time to achieve whatever look you're trying to get so it's a many step process but if you look online if you go to the or if you come to liberty science center to the microbes exhibit you will the entire uh, exhibition starts with this agar art as a way into learning about bacteria and why bacteria is good for us and all the many manifestations. But it starts with this very physical, beautiful object that you can understand painting a picture. So in the exhibition, we use virtual bacteria that has been carefully calibrated to grow the way real bacteria does so that you can do your virtual agar art as you would if you were a microbiologist. It's very funny. <laughs> that is crazy. Liza, have you made agar art? Not. I have made virtual agar art. Virtual agar art at have, Liberty Science Center. At, at Liberty Science Center. And I have been to I have been to many labs and met we went to labs and talked to microbiologists and we have exa- we have examples of uh beautiful agar art on display. Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin, was a member of the art colony in New York. This is how we found out actually about agar art and used to, and he himself made, used agar as a canvas and painted with bacteria. Probably the bacteria that makes penicillin. It's fascinating and who knew? So who knew? That's amazing. <laughs> agar but, art. So agar. it's all in petri dishes. So every entry in the agar art competition is a circle. Is that right? Yes. And it's a little circle. It's a, it's there, a, there are bigger. You can get up to five inches. Yeah. Oh. And agar comes in different colors. So the medium of the agar determines what bacteria will grow in it, which determines your palate. So there's a lot of choices. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm going to rename (laughs) this episode because this is fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. Let's, let's, I want to talk more about that, but I also want to talk about point number three. We just talked about what do we want to hear them saying? Uh, Now we're talking about what do we want to see them doing? Correct. So we ask who it's for. What do we want to hear them saying when they're engaging with it? Wow, this is cool. And then what do we want to see them doing? Unpack that for our listeners. And maybe if you have any examples, I'm sure you got a bunch. But when you say doing, what do you mean? And what do you what do, what kinds of things do you like to see your visitors doing? I think this is my favorite question because it opens up all sorts of things. And this is directly related to activity. So when we ask the question, what do we want to see them doing? It may be I'm trying to think of a good example here. It may be we want to see them collaborating with other guests or in a social circle, collaborating to create one thing together. Or we want to see, we want to see, we want to have moments of reflection and doing things, focusing on something that you're doing alone. 
or we want to see a big motor gesture. We want to see something that's like a, a big moment and a big gesture. And again, I'm talking very vaguely, but if we're if we're in a process where we have our topic, when we talk about what are we doing, that could be, so let's go back to Wobbly World. We're talking about balance is our core. The exhibition is about balance and unbalance. And so when we talked about what do we want to see kids doing, we want to see them, if it's a large motor thing, we want to see them walking on an uneven, balancing and walking on an uneven surface, like the edge of a wall. When you see a kid in a park, there's a park and there's a wall, kids will be jumping up on that wall and walking along it. So we want to see balancing along a narrow, a narrow, dangerous, high, wiggly surface. We want to see them trying to balance small things on a scale together to make something else move. So to experimenting with other kids to pile stuff on one place and see if it'll fall off and make something move up above them, which is something that happens in Wally World. Or we want to see them taking giant blocks and creating a um, their own balanced or unbalanced surface that they're then walking on. Or that's so in, in each one of those cases, you're talking about the person, what they're doing. You're almost not, you haven't designed the thing. No. You're almost thinking about a, a person doing something and it's in a white space or a black space all around them. And you, again, the, the theme of all your questions is don't start designing by designing. Ask questions so what first. is the activity, right? What is the activity that we want to see them doing? How do we want, how, do, how are adults involved in this activity? What does that look like? And so what do we, what is the energy and what is the activity that we want to see happening in the space? And when you start thinking about that activity that you want to see, the small activity, the big activity, the reflective activity, the loud activity, the group activity, the solo activity, whatever it may be, it it's then you start thinking about your topic and the things that you want to convey in your exhibition about balance, about microbes, about mammoths, about dinosaurs, you can start, these things start coming together. So you start being able to have, you, so you've imagined the space and you've imagined the energy, if you imagine what people are saying, and then you can start as you're starting to develop your themes, the classic, what are our messages? What are our themes? Those messages and themes are the activity has to support those messages and themes and, and ideas and your learning goals and your experience goals at all. It's a very messy process, but I promise it works. <laughs> it's I wanna, I wanna, speaking of messy, <laughs> I want to circle back to something that our dear listeners will not realize. You and I are, we can see each other. We're only recording audio, but you and I can see each other. And, and at one moment, you put up some air quotes. I want to make sure that visitors understand when you did that. You were talking <laughs> about a wall that was, quote, high and dangerous. You made an air quotes gesture with your fingers. 
I want to make the visitors understand that you are not creating high and dangerous no, no, walls no. for young children. Okay. <laughs> There's an air quotes moment there. I got to editorially insert that. And I did have one question. It's a jargon watch. You use the word motor a couple of times, and I am in the same business as you, so I know what that means in this context, but I'm sure we got some listeners who are imagining that there are large V8 motor engine blocks hovering in the air. When, when you say large motor, can you break that down for us? What is it? What sure. is it? You said you'd let, you, for example, let's have a big motor gesture. It's not an automobile museum. What does that mean? Uh, that means in the case of our audience, something. So think about playground is when you're, when you see kids at a playground, those are large motor activities. They're climbing, they're jumping, they're crawling, they're maybe running, which we don't want to encourage. It's a, it's happening. And so it's using, it's a full body. It's large motor is full body. Small motor are, is the very fine things that you might do cutting with a scissor or writing with a pencil or putting one small thing on top of another small thing or hooking an eye, putting an eye on a hook. They require focus, eye focus, and the ability to use your fingers in a way that are uh, is very precise. And as a child, as you know, from having children and just observing children, the large motor stuff and the small motor stuff, you know, depends on what stage you're at. So a, a 16-year-old is going to be capable of doing much more fine motor stuff than a five-year-old. because right. they're, So motor in that sense, large motor and small motor, that refers to muscle groups? Muscle groups. And it's physical abilities to capabilities. It's from the childhood development world. So large motor is big muscle groups like thighs and biceps, and small motor is fingertips and tendons and things like that. Okay, so number four. Now comes the question, what should the experience feel like? We've talked about you thinking about what people should be saying. We've talked about you thinking about what you'd like your visitors to be doing. And now we're thinking about what the experience should feel like. And I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong. So what do you mean by that question? And side question, do you always do it in this order of questions? No. Or is it, as you were saying, a mess? It could be simultaneous, parallel, or whatever. I would say if we were going to reorder the questions, which I probably should have. The question is more, how do we want them to feel? My, so rather than what should the experience feel like is how do we want them to feel? Oh, I see. So then all the questions would be, what do we want to hear them what saying? Do what do see we want them to see doing? them doing? What do we want right. to have them feeling? Okay, I got it. So it's more like, what do we want to see them doing? What do we want to hear them saying? What do we want them to feel what do we want them to share? What do we want them to remember? The what do we want them to feel could be excitement, it could be joy, it could be wonder, it could be any number of things, and it could be empowerment. It could be again, depending on depending on the topic. In the case of very often it's we want them to feel inspired. 
and empowered. And I think that's probably the number one thing we want our guests to walk away with or excited or awestruck. I think we have the privilege of creating spaces that can empower people to, to feel. And if it's just a blank white box with some sawhorses on it, they're going to feel one way. If it's this amazing, immersive environment where there's color and light and sound and something's going on, they're going to feel something else. That helps that how do we want them to feel helps us get to not just the connection to the topic, but also that's where it starts. This is also helping to think about the design approach. And I, to me, they're all tangled up together. You've used some examples of exhibits that you have or that you have had, like Wobbly World, Our Hudson Home. Um, in those cases or other cases, what were the feelings that you were going for? In the microbes exhibit, the feeling that we were going for is the beauty of these very tiny organisms. So we wanted the gallery to feel like a magical jewel box, that you were inside this magical jewel box that was glowing because the only way to see the agar art is the best way to see it is with light behind it. So you're stepping into essentially a light box that is full of these beautiful, they're, they're all blown up to a very large scale so you can see the complexity of the organisms and the bacteria. And that was that was the idea that you were stepping inside a microscope and you were inside the microscope and you were in this place that's where the light is coming from behind things and it's glowing and you're surrounded by these beautiful things. So in that case, you're you don't think of microbes as making you making a being beautiful and thinking, oh, this is this is beautiful. It's number it's our number one most photographed space in the science center. People tend to just take photographs in it because it's this beautiful glowing jewel box. So we wanted them to feel amazed that these organisms were so gorgeous and yet so powerful. The bacteria is for good and for bad, as we we found, are are very tiny and very powerful and very beautiful, it turns out. I'd like to go back to the empowered. You said the things you might want people to feel could be excitement, joy, wonder, or empowerment. Could you open that up a little bit? Why is it important I, I have a guess, but why is it important that visitors to Liberty Science Center feel empowered? In, in what sort of sense? I, I'm empowered to vote. I'm empowered to stand up for myself. I'm empowered to do something about this injustice. But what do you mean by empowered, and why is that so important? I think it means that there, science can have a reputation of being hard. And not everyone that comes to Liberty Science Center it wants to be a scientist. But science can be, and technology is part of our world, and we use it every day. And I think when I say empowered, I think that it's accessible 
I can learn more. I can learn about science. I can learn about technology. I can participate in it. And it's not scary. And I don't feel dumb or whatever. And I'm pro totally projecting because that's very often how I feel. But I, I was going to ask to what degree <laughs> this was becoming autobiographical yeah. because of what uh, you said about how you got into the business. You it's, belong this, here. Yeah, yeah this I is your place. You are. This is your you place. Have the power you belong to be here. here, and you are empowered to be inspired by and use and learn and be curious about science because science is for us and for you, and I. That's very important. I think. For me personally and in creating spaces, I want, I think it's also about inclusivity and feeling welcome. That it's, it's not, even if it's complex, there is a way into it that you can find, that we can find that, that is there for you and that you can learn more about. And I think that's what I mean by maybe power isn't quite the right word. I love all of those things. Let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you to everybody who has given this show a five-star rating. That's amazing. You can also write a review in Apple Podcasts. Or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and its cousin, the newsletter. Now, back to the show. Today, we're talking with Liza Rawson about Start With Who It's For. And we have seven points total. We have just three left. Next up is point number five. What is the RAP? W-R-A-P. That's a term you use at Liberty Science. What does RAP mean, and why is it important that we know what it is? So this actually grew out of my work in the children's museum field. And this idea, and maybe RAP is, uh, there are other words for it, and I'm sure it's familiar to anyone who works in exhibition development and design, but it's the container that you are placing the experience in. So the rat may be, as I was just talking about, the rat may be you're stepping inside. So this is about thinking about the design of the space when I think about the rat and the, the design and then how the, how everything hangs off the design. So it's, so the wrap. So it's like a hook. What is the hook? What is the, so that may be in the case of microbes, you're stepping into a microscope and you're, as you walk into the gallery, you are physically feeling like you are walking into the plate. I don't remember what it's called because as soon as I complete an exhibit, I forget everything about it. You're, <laughs> I do. <laughs> everything is new. Um, you walk inside and the floor is a circle like an agar ditch, right? The curve into the gallery has the has looks like the top of a microscope or the lens of a microscope. The floor is a little gushy because agar is a little gushy. The curves of the everything in the exhibit is curves the way the curve of a of an of a petri dish might be. So 
the wrap, the things that are hanging above it are giant 3D bacteria shapes because you're inside the microscope. And so that's what would be to scale. That would be if you were stepping inside a microscope. And then that idea then shapes the design of the physical space and the lighting of the physical space and the graphics and whatever else might be the environment that you're inside. So the wrap is, you just use the word hook, might be the big idea. It's well, the I simple the wrap, almost elevator pitch about what it's going to be like. I think the wrap is more the physical space. It's more if you are going, the big idea is the big idea. Microbes are cool, might right. be the big idea. But the wrap is you're inside a microscope hmm. and you're experiencing it's this. It's an experiential big idea. It's an experiential. You're inside a microscope and everything is inside a microscope. Or And so everything is that, that environment feels like it speaks to that idea. Right. And it's Ant-Man, Quantumania. It's Honey, I Just Shrunk the Kids. It's that kind of an idea. You're going into a tiny world and it's gorgeous. And it's gorgeous. Exactly. So that's a wrap. It might be a wrap might be a you are stepping inside a, I don't know, a store. And so everything in there, everything sings one note. I like to say everything sings one note. The big idea sings one note. The activities you do are all speaking to that big idea. The environment around you supports that big idea and that so it's finding the container that the wrap is the container that holds all of that the activity the experience goals the learning goals it's all one thing got it it's just a it's just a way of thinking about an, a design approach and it's also that it it's also helps shape how you might write labels you like the voice that you might write a label to because you're you're in this particular environment. So it become I, a guide point or a source of truth for everything in the exhibit. So if you've determined you are stepping into a microscope as your hook or your wrap or your experiential big idea, then everything would be written that way. The labels would be written as if you are inside a microscope and you should look that because you're inside hard, the microscope. Yes, that would be the ideal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But the yeah, as you were describing the, now I want to go to this exhibit too, it's all curvilinear because that's the nature of being inside a microscope. Here's another one, and this goes back pre-Liberty Science Center, but one of my favorite exhibits of all time was an exhibit about patterns. And it was for kids. It was a traveling exhibit. And the wrap, was is when wizardry was very popular because of a certain British wizard. And the wrap that was that you were a source, you were a wizard apprentice and you put on a cape and you learned about the patterns in the world through activities and the activities could be whatever the activities were. They were making tessellations or they were making a coil or they were, I'm trying to remember, they were creating branches or you were learning about symmetry. And all of the labels were limericks, like little, so like you were saying in incantation. So when you were learning about the pattern of a spiral, when you read the label about what a spiral was, 
it was an incantation. It was a little, and you were in your cape. <laughs> oh, it's a little spell, but it was literally it was a, a little spell. So the idea was, and it was this magical place, right? So where you learned about the patterns of the world and you, and so that was a wrap. And that was a case where the text and the activity and the environment all were around this idea of Interesting. So it sounds like the ones you're describing, like the idea of you're, you shrink and go into a microscope um, or you are a wizard, both of those are playing on something that's in the air in the culture at the moment. Sometimes. Right? So, so you will, because you're starting with who it's for and you have a topic, you're trying to make the most powerful bridge you can between the people who are coming in the door and this topic by giving them something that's going to draw them in starting from where they are instead of from where you are. And that is that point of engagement. Yeah. Is Speaking of, now there, there's a segue for you. <laughs> so point number six, we got seven points. Point number six is related to the one we were just talking about, if I understand correctly from our pre-show. And uh, number six, a question you asked, it's all about asking questions before you design anything. What is the quote, point of engagement, unquote? So we talked about rap, that's some jargon in your world. What is the thing you call point of engagement? I think that's where it all comes together. So remember we talked about who it's for and we did some deep digging and research to understand when we have a specific topic. And so at the very beginning, we have learned where our audience, what our audience might know and understand or be absorbing from the ether about a particular topic. We understand what their capabilities are in terms of their physical, social, emotional. We've done all that research. We've done all that thinking. We've done our, we've set our experience goals where we understand what the capabilities are and what our goals are. And we've looked at, we've it's now taking all of those things together and finding where there is a point where those things match up. The point of engagement is figuring out um, where the capabilities and the understanding and, the, and where our audience might be with a particular topic. They know nothing or they know a lot. And then where the activity is and where that content is and where that experience, where we can meet them, where they are, so they can engage with it and be inspired to go and learn more. So for the audience, I, I, another like a, a, a verbal captioning, Liza is making a gesture of bringing her two hands together, their fingertips, a bit Sistine Chapel, and having them come together until the fingertips touch. Yeah. And that's the point of engagement between the fingers of your opposite. Between who the audience is right. and who they are and where our topic is and where our activity is and finding where those naturally and organically are. Because what we want in the end is for the experience to feel organic. It We want... It, our goal is always to create an experience where there is no, we do not have to explain what to do. And we do not have to explain what's supposed to happen. There's no explanation. It is an organic, they, you can sit down, you can start 
doing whatever. You can just start. And the experience and the engagement is organic and intuitive and doing it conveys whatever the information is or the learning goal is to you because it you know what to do. You're not sitting down and spending your time trying to figure out what we thought would be fun or what you, it's an organic process. And I should say that there's, to get to that point is a lot of iteration and a lot of collaboration and a lot of testing and and a lot of knocking things off the table because most of the time it doesn't work, right? And the point of engagement in a perfect world is where we have finally, through a process over many months, hopefully, <laughs> we have many months, to refine and to learn more and to keep learning. So it's it we start with all of these questions, but I would say we revisit all of them constantly throughout process and are learning and in a way asking who it's for and thinking about it in that way is inviting your guests or your visitor, however you phrase it, into your process and making them part of your process so that in the end, you've created something that is for them, but also that they are that feels welcoming and inclusive because not about them all the way. And you know your audience for any given thing so well that when you say organic, like with Wobbly World, that that person who is under 42 inches tall goes into Wobbly World and begins doing the things just immediately with delight, et cetera, because you know exactly where they're at. You know that they are able to do this kind of activity and this kind. They will be frustrated by this kind because developmentally they're not there yet. So big motor things, a few small motor things, but you're not going to have a four-year-old attempt to do embroidery or anything like that. That's too sophisticated, as you were saying before. But you know your audience so well that you don't need to put instructional materials because you know they'll just swim right in there. That's what you mean by organic. I do, but I would say that we start with ideas about who our audience is but Wobbly World was tested deeply, so we built every we built large scale models of everything and through and tested it. And so it's yes, you can have a good guess and a good base for understanding perhaps who your audience is, but until you bring them into the process and invite them to participate in it through prototyping, through questions, through whatever evaluation, it's that iterative evaluation process, and you respect and listen to it and go back and keep changing it until it is organic. So I don't want to make it seem that we just know if we're out on things. <laughs> There's a lot of right. work. Yeah, you have a There's whole a process lot of work for and doing a lot it. of process. Yeah, yeah. You just don't pop out knowing everything. You go through you the know. whole process. I'm curious about the prototyping, then we'll jump to the last point, number seven. When you're making large-scale models, are they, as you describe Wobbly World, as a beautiful place. You've described the Agar Art Exhibit Microbes as a beautiful place. Are your prototypes beautiful, or are they like cheap and cheerful, cardboard, two-by-fours, beat them up at first, it's all fine. Yeah, they're foam, they're they're cardboard, they're 
things printed out on giant. The, the greatest thing we ever got was a plotter because <laughs> then you can make like giant things and hang them up. It is a lot of listening and watching and learning for an outdoor experience. We have an outdoor dino dig experience and we had the the great advantage of having a temporary one for three or four years before we built the giant, huge, expensive, beautiful one. And and so we could take things out while people were out there and throw them out and ask questions and watch. And people are great. If you're telling people, and this is classic prototyping, if you're telling people that you want them to tell you what they think or how we could make something better, or if you're listening to conversations people are having around something, you learn a lot. And then you, you go back and you change it. Because the worst thing you want to do is spend a ton of money on something that doesn't work. To me, that feels irresponsible. So to me, this process of thinking about audience, of thinking about engagement, of testing and iterative and really doing the deep research to understand who it's for and how they might engage with your topic means that you are creating an experience that is valuable for them but also is responsible for the it's being fiscally responsible for your institution because then they're you're creating something that's there for five seven god forbid longer and it's a dud. You, no one's happy here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy. No one comes. For sure. Um, we had uh, this number of episodes back at Paul Orselli on the show to talk about prototyping. And a, a quote I remember, I'm paraphrasing, is uh, something effective. If you think prototyping is expensive, just wait till you see how expensive total failure is. <laughs> and some things say what's true. That things may not work when they get... But the doing, making the sausage, doing the hard work to put all of that, to think about all of those things and to consider those things as you're going through the process is a better guarantee of a great outcome for the institution and for your guests. And your goal is to have people come back and want to come back and tell their friends and bring their family and it just to me, it makes sense. It's, it's a worthwhile. It's a worthwhile investment for sure. Yeah. Okay, so number seven, we've got a number seven. This is this has been great. Uh, number seven is what do you want them to say when you ask what the goal was? This is finale here. The last question on your list. I'm sure there are hundreds more questions, but these big ones. Number seven. What do you want them to say when you ask what the goal was? Does so? Does that mean that you once the thing is all up and running and some people come out of, let's say, the microbe exhibit and you literally go up to them and you say, what do you think the goal was of that thing you just did? Is that literally what you do or am I being... We have done some variation of that and that goes back to the beginning, which we didn't really talk about, but that that was part of the wrap, as part of your experience, as part of, there is a core, core idea. You're the classic Beverly Sorrell big idea. We want the big idea to be something, and this is also something that evolves as you're learning uh, about your audience and going through the process. But for us, the big idea is something we want to hear people saying when everything is up and everything is done. 
um, when we say to them, what do you think we were trying to tell you here? What do you think if you were going to tell someone what this exhibit that was about or what we were trying to tell you, what would you say? And when it works, <laughs> um, we hope to hear what we started with. Microbes are cool. We're learning about, there's new discoveries about dinosaurs. Every This is the golden age of dinosaurs. Or I can't remember what our main message was for the, or a big idea was for the dinosaurs, but it was something like new discoveries about dinosaurs. They're making new discoveries every day. So I think for me that that question of what do you want to hear them saying right at the end is that you have created an experience where the project fulfills its goal to inspire or to spark around a certain idea or topic and you hear that parroted back to you they've gone Another great big idea for the Beyond Rubik's Cube exhibit. The big idea was Rubik's Cube is more than just a toy. Because it's inspired, it's become a metaphor. It's inspired all these inventions. It's it's this little puzzle, but it's much bigger than that, which was the point of the exhibit. So we actually asked people when they came out of that exhibit, what do, you, what do you think this exhibit was about? Or what do you think, what would you tell people? Like, wow, Rubik's Cube is it's more than a toy. It's just, it's like much bigger than that. It's So that's what I mean when I say, when we say that last question is. Here, can I back up? Then we'll go to the uh, quick recap. But you mentioned you're very well read during this conversation. You've mentioned a couple of other folks who have written in her big names in the museum industry. I want to come back to Beverly Sorrell. Mm -hmm. uh, many listeners may know that name. Some listeners may not. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about why they should know that name? Oh, my goodness. Beverly Sorrell is a light in the museum field. Beverly Sorrell, and I met her when she was, when I was in my very first job in the 19, well, I'm not going to say when, it was a very long time ago, um, and wow. she was thinking about the there. There were a number of number of people who were thinking about exhibit development was a new idea, right? It's hard to believe now, but there were curators, and the curators would decide what the exhibit was about, and it would be a book on a wall and something else and some objects. Beverly started thinking about. A coherent way to create, and I'm—I mean, I may be doing her a disservice here, but she was the one who I think put for the first time that the big idea, how important it was to have an exhibition have one core idea that was supported throughout, so that it was one idea that was holding the exhibit together. And she coined, I believe. The, the big idea as so, so a lot of what you've been relaying that sounds familiar to anyone who's been listening to this show so far these are some of the ideas you've been relaying so a lot of what you have learned along the way reading taking in these this thought leadership from other folks you have brought back into your own career and deployed that and now 
hopefully listening to this podcast, we're doing the same thing. You are exchanging this thought leadership with others and they will go deploy that. So I like that circularity. And I also, the, I like the notion that there are plenty of people out there that people who are starting their career or mid-career or whatever it might be can continue to consult. That's one of the reasons that Making the Museum exists, both the podcast and the newsletter, is to help get information to people out there because we're all a little bit raised by wolves. Okay, so quick recap. This was our list for today. We are talking about start with who's it for? with Eliza Rawson. Theme is don't start designing by designing, ask questions instead. Number one, start with who's it for? Number two, what do we want to hear them saying? Number three, what do we want to see them doing? Number four, what do we want them to feel? See, I already rewrote that. Number (laughs) five, what is the wrap, quote unquote? Number six, what is the, quote, point of engagement, unquote? And number seven, what do you want them to say when you ask what the goal was? How did I do? Did I leave anything out? I don't think so. All right. Liza Rawson, it has been so great to have you on the show. I learned many things. I was very surprised by a lot of what we talked about. And if our dear listener uh, got half as much out of it as I did, that's still a lot. This was terrific. If listeners would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that. We'll put your contact coordinates into the show notes, but for those people who are walking the dog and they want to want to contact you right away, email, website, e- LinkedIn. Email or LinkedIn. Yep. I'm on LinkedIn. Just, I think it's Liza Rice Rawson. Might be my, I might throw my middle name in there. I'm on LinkedIn. And Let's I- spell that. L-I-Z-A-R-E-I-C-H-R-A-W-S-O-N. Right. Three words. <laughs> Got it. And uh, you were going to say email? Email. And that's lrawson at lsc.org. lrawson at lsc.org. Okay. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It was really, you could talk about it all day. Both of us do talk about this stuff all day long, but your way of looking at it, this idea of, because I'm often hired to design things, but there is, as you pointed out, as Beverly pointed out, there is this other thing called exhibit development, which is exhibition planning, et cetera, which is really the core topic of this show and the newsletter that goes with it. So I'm loving this conversation, and I think people should have more conversations like this about what you do before you start designing. You could almost do this kind of work until it designs itself. I I would say, I would just say that I think at the beginning of the process, the designers are at the table. Mm-hmm. So development and design are, we say development and design, but they're not separate. In when we start a project, the designers are, and if we're very lucky, the fabricators are part of the process from the very beginning. There's a diversity of opinions and a diversity of viewpoints. And also the other people that are around the table are the people we also design, you think about after the after, right? So you need, you're, you don't just do the exhibit and then it it just exists. So you, there's a lot of people that are part of all of those questions at the very beginning and through the process because it impacts an entire institution. 
So the designers are there, the educators are there, the maintainers are there, the facilities people are there. Whoever needs to be there are at the table and participating in these questions. So it's not necessarily a baton pass. It it's is not a everyone working together. The designers are the designers are are right there. It's a big happy mess and it's not linear and it's for a long time it used to be terrifying. It's not terrifying anymore, which is nice. It's nice to have that experience where it's not terrifying anymore because you know it's all going to sort itself out. It sounds a little bit like growing microbes to make art out of them. <laughs> it's going to go the way it goes, but in the it end, goes you the way know it goes, and it will be great. Yeah, you're going to have a beautiful circle when you're all trust done. the process. Trust yeah. the process. All right, that's great. Again, such a pleasure to have you here. Okay, I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R, or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. By the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter under the same name, one quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience professionals. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. There's a big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.